Good morning. I'm excited. We're starting a new series. I'm sure some of you are excited too. I love Galatians, uh, but we spent quite a bit of time there. So this morning we do something a little bit different that we haven't done so far. Um, we're going to spend the next six weeks in the Psalms. And this morning, as I'm studying for this series, I learned so much and I was convicted about my own study of the Psalms. I wanted to spend uh, this, this first week looking at the Psalms in an overview. So uh, bear with me with the extra long introduction this morning. Uh, but realistically, I could spend weeks on what we can glean from the Psalms. And so I encourage you to take notes. You want to take out your, your sermon outline. There's going to be a lot that's going to be helpful here for you. I just want to, want to challenge you. I hope that this encourages you to read through the Psalms in this next six-week period. If you read three or so a day, you can make it through the entire book of Psalms in the next six weeks. And so as we open up this message, we're going to look at the first thing. What is the purpose of reading the Psalms? Now, I have to confess, previously, I've avoided the Psalms. Um, if you've met me for more than five minutes, you know how much of an emotional person I am. Uh, and so I thought that the Psalms were for emotional people, which, full disclosure, that's all sarcasm. I'm not a very emotional person. It's part of the reason that I've avoided the Psalms over the years. And I was convicted recently of the dryness in my heart for the Lord, that I didn't sing out to the Lord and praise his name in my own devotions. And so when we look at the Psalms, it is the heart of what it means to follow the Lord. And so the first thing I want us to get is you know, we read the Bible for the same reason we read the Psalms. So an easy question, who is this about? One word. God, Jesus, you can, you can speak out. I don't mind if you, you, you uh, speak back to me. But this, the Bible, is a book about God and his interactions with his people to tell them and draw him to himself. And all scriptures are timeless because of the nature of the life of man. We recognize that God was created in man's image. And Adam and David struggle with the same things we struggle with. They rejoice in the same things we rejoice in. And the Psalms, especially because they speak to every range of human emotion and experience. And they're extremely helpful in teaching and directing us toward the person and work of Christ. And so, by the nature of Scripture, all Scripture, Christ being the Word Himself, teaches us about and points us to Christ. Many times we read the Psalms and think of them apart from Christ. And we can't do that because the Psalms get their fulfillment and their culmination in Christ. He is the pinnacle of redemption in human history. So the first verse I want us to look at this morning, it's going to be up on the screen, is Colossians 3.16. And this is what Paul charged the early church with. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let Christ dwell in you. The purpose of being thankful toward God with psalms and hymns and singing with your heart as the conduit 
to get you there. So we remember when we read through the New Testament that they're littered with Old Testament references. I mean, this was the Bible of the apostles. In Acts, when Peter preached and 3,000 people believed, it was Christ in the Old Testament. When Stephen, before he was martyred, preached and saw Christ standing up, welcoming him, him in, he preached Christ from the Old Testament. Jesus' audiences knew these texts and they knew them well. But they were either blind to them and had their hearts hardened like the Pharisees, or they had their eyes open like those who we spoke to on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to look at that text in just, just a minute. So the same question we asked earlier, who is the Bible about? So who are the Psalms about? You can answer. Amen. All right. Thank you. We'll make sure you guys got that one. Um, what does the word psalm mean in Hebrew? The ancient Hebrew word tehillim, it, it means to make a jubilant sound or simply praises. So the purpose of psalms are to teach, to instruct, but also as liturgy. It's our framework for our praises to God. The book is from God to God. St. Augustine says that Christ is the writer, the singer, and the object of the Psalms. But yet many times we read the Psalms as if Christ is absent, or this has, has no bearing on Christ until he comes a thousand years later. So the Psalms are scripture and liturgy. So when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, it's called the, the Septuagint. The word Psalms was, was used. Uh, it's literally the, the uh, book, of, book of praises. But if you get down to the essence of what the word Psalm means, it means to pluck or to strum. It's musical accompaniment. It's musical praises to our God. So that's where we get our name, our, uh, our English word Psalm from, from the Greek word to pluck. Psalms were written by many authors over a period of a thousand years. Uh, the oldest psalm was written by, by Moses. The latest psalm probably by, by Ezra. Uh, we think David was the sole writer, the majority writer, but he wrote little less than half of the psalms. So we see this range of human emotion by many different writers over a period of a thousand years, all glorifying God, all describing the human condition. We, we read about joy. Fear, praise, love, depression, regret. Also, a complete picture of God's sovereignty, his majesty, his mercy, his redemption, and his power. One of the great books I read preparing for this week, uh, Steve Lawson, one of the, if you ever get a chance to listen to his preaching, one of the, my, my favorite preachers to listen to, um, his, his sermons, you're rarely going to find one under 50 minutes. Uh, but they're so full of information, so full of declaration of who God is. So he wrote a book called Preaching in the Psalms. So he brought something to my eyes that I'd never seen before. And this list will be up on the screen for you. But uh, this is not his original work. But several commentators have gone through the Psalms and seen the, the parallels to the five books of the Torah. The Pentateuch, the, the initial five books. So if we look at Psalm 1 through 41, we see a parallel to Genesis, the interaction 
of God and man. Each book in the Psalms after chapter 41 ends in a doxology, a praise to God. Book two, we see the transition into Exodus, uh, the theme of ruin and restoration of Israel. Book two is 42 through 72. And again, at the end of Psalm 72, we see a praise of of, um, doxology to the Lord. So we see in the Psalms that every book parallels with the journey of, of Israel and addresses the similar themes that we see in the first five books of the Bible and so forth. We see in Leviticus, the sanctuary and holiness of God, uh, Psalm 73 to 89. In Numbers, we see the wilderness and the longing for the promised land, Psalm 90 through 106. And then Deuteronomy, which is called the heart of the Old Testament. Uh, We see the supremacy of the law of God, his word, and it culminates in a five psalm doxology. Psalm 145 to 150 begins and ends ends with praise to the Lord. So this book that covers the range of human emotion, covers the creation and uh, building and journey of, of, of Israel. We could talk about Christ in the Psalms all year. We, this series could go on and on and on. And this is something I want to do more often. We will do mini series in the Psalms ongoing because there's so much richness here, so much richness that I've missed. And I'm sure you may have too. And I hope this encourages you to read through, pray through, and sing through the Psalms in your own devotional life. Because the Psalms give us a full picture of how awesome God is, how perfect His purposes are, which our culture and sadly many of our churches have forgot. Because the God of the Psalms is big. He's sovereign. He's powerful. The bigger your God is, the easier it is to trust in him. And the more sure your identity is in him. And the more confident you are in his anointed son, the Savior King, We don't have to worry about the competing ideas of the world. We're going to talk about that next week as we cover Psalm 1 and 2. So, those of you who are a little more astute, okay, we spent all this time talking about the Psalms, the longest introduction I've done so far. But why is the text in Hebrews? Hopefully, I think you you will see that this morning, because Hebrews is the biblical theology of the New Testament. How does Christ marry with what the Jews thought of of their their history? How does the themes of king, prophet, and priest come together in Christ? Where does the writer of Hebrews start? In the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms. Let's pray together before we read. Lord, I just hope that this morning, as we open your word, that many of us grew up in churches or, or cultures in which the Old Testament seemed to be archaic and not connected to the New Testament and and it was unnecessary or it was only necessary for moralistic teaching. But Lord, I hope we see that your name, the name that is above all names, is throughout all scripture. From the very beginning you created and you worked out your plan of redemption through your people over a span of thousands of years, but that your name was never any less glorious, your identity was not hidden, 
slowly revealed to us over time. And so I hope when we leave here this morning that we will see your glory and your grace and your love through the truth of the Psalms, most importantly, through the identity of the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you would, open up in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as one much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be a father to him, and, she, and he shall be like me to, shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies, your enemies, a footstool for your feet? Amen. As we walk back through this, this passage, the writer of Hebrews references the Psalms 8 times. Just in the first four verses, we see all the themes of the book of Psalms that are pointing to Christ. A son, an heir, creator, glorious, ruler and judge over all things, redeemer, seated in the throne and a name that is above all names. So where do we start in this passage in Hebrews? Verse 1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke by the prophets. First thing to see, God speaks. We already said that the Bible is about God, by God, giving praises to God. He spoke through the prophets, setting the foundation for his son. Now, when we think about prophecy in our day, it's easy to get it confused with people who have conferences, really bad graphic design, a lot of, a lot of, a lot, a lot of flames, a lot of, uh, cheesy prophecies, um, fools who want to claim that the end of the world is coming next year. We're not talking about those type of prophets. We're talking about those inspired by God, led by the Holy Spirit, who spoke to the people of, of their day, 
but also, also spoke of things that they couldn't possibly know. They might not even understand, but yet they were proclaiming the Christ that was to come. Many of the Psalms address life now, but many of them look forward to the coming kingdom, the Davidic reign on the throne of God forever and ever and ever. We have to be very careful not to give in to allegory. Because on one side of allegory is assuming that every text in every situation talks about Christ. And then we have this muddled, muddied idea of who Christ is. But the other side is that nothing in the Old Testament is about Christ, which was the sin of the Pharisees. That the texts were just for them in that time and that they couldn't even see when the Messiah was in their midst. Because Jesus told them the kingdom is in your midst. Christ is the personification of that, that kingdom and will usher in that kingdom one day. So when we read prophetic literature, which the Psalms are part of, we see layers. We see the layers that were addressed to the people of that day. The layers would be addressed to the people of God of all ages. And the layers of prophecy that come for things to come. So when we read about David, they are Psalms of David. The reign of David is a literal reign in a time of God's people. But it's also from the house of Judah. And a lot of times when the Psalms are speaking about David, David will reign on his throne forever. Talking about the son of David. One of the names that was attributed to David, or excuse me, to, to Jesus. When he would walk into a town, they would say, son of David, have mercy on me. Even in their ignorance, they recognized that this king, that this promised line, this throne from the house of David would one day be fulfilled. We saw a partial fulfillment in Solomon, probably the greatest, richest nation in the history of the world. And where Israel saw the most peace and the most prosperity, they got a small glimpse of what Christ's kingdom was to be, but it was still incomplete. We saw how it turned out for Solomon. So when Jesus wanted to prove himself to his disciples, how did he do it? He hit his hands, he hit his feet, but where did he point them? He pointed them to what we would refer to as the Old Testament, which were the scriptures of the Hebrews. And Jesus described the Old Testament scriptures in the divisions that they would have understood. And so we're going to see that in Luke 24. So if you would turn with me. So Luke 24, this is after the resurrection, this is before Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. They were still confused, they still didn't know what was going on. Jesus comes up to them in the road to Emmaus and walks them through the greatest revelation that the world has ever seen, is that the Son of Man is risen and that all of creation, all of Scripture points to him. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. So as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet 
that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveled, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Christ, in his own words, proved himself in the Old Testament. The apostles built the church from dozens to thousands through the words of the Old Testament. Christ uses the initial divisions of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And those were the three major categories that his people were familiar with. Imagine the greatest sermon, the greatest expositional teaching you've ever heard. Jesus walks through the Old Testament and shows them himself. Now, he had great proof, right? He had the holes in his hands. He had the scars on his feet. He even ate food after he was supposed to be dead. So you know it was me. You saw the scars. I ate among you. I'm living when I'm supposed to be dead. But the real proof was in God's word. God's timeless word pointed to Christ. So when we think about prophecy, Isaiah comes to mind, but the Psalms rarely come to mind. But in references in the New Testament, the the Psalms outnumber every other Old Testament book. There are more prophecies about Christ from the Psalms than in Isaiah. So that's what we're going to see in this text here in just a moment. So if we go back to our Hebrews text, I want to set, I wanted to set the stage with how Jesus taught himself. Jesus spoke to his disciples from the Old Testament scriptures, uh, and the Psalms being one of them. As we get back to our text in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, but in these last days, he spoke to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. The first thing we see here is appointed. Next week, as we get into Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Psalm 2 talks about God's anointed, which is the king of Israel, David, but ultimately Christ. So we see that the anointed one is the Messiah, the promised one, the one that Israel should have been looking forward to. The one that we now know as Jesus. That word Messiah means Christ. It is a synonym of anointed. So we see the fullness of all God has been displaying to his people in the prophets from verse 1. In verse 2, it culminates in the Son. As the heir of all things. All things that God created, all good things, Christ possesses in himself. The third thing we see in this passage is that he is the divine savior king. If we look in verse three, he 
still talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Exact imprint of his nature being God. Christ is the exact imprint of God. We're not talking about a lesser being and sometimes we we, we don't truly understand how this Trinity thing works and how does the Father and Son work and we're going to talk about that next week. But the writer of Hebrews tells us clearly the exact imprint of God. He is the radiance of his glory. The Messiah is God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Messiah reigns and rules. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited. So the Messiah is God. The Messiah rules and reigns and Messiah saves because he made a purification for sins. Everything that the Bible tells us that we need to know about God and ourselves is through Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of everything that God was setting up in the Old Testament. As we saw in Galatians, the law set the foundation, but it was incomplete because we could never keep that law. It was not completed until Christ kept it completely. The heir of all things stepped down from the right hand of the Father to come to live, to die, to ascend back up to his majesty. And with that, he took on the name that was above all names to be worshipped. The more I go through this passage, the more I enjoy Psalm 96.2. You're going to hear about that every week. And we've talked about, we talked about it last week as well. Psalm 96.2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. That encompasses the gospel. That encompasses what I want us to be about as a church. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. That's what it means to be a Christian. So now let's walk through the proof of Christ. Verse 5 to 10, this is kind of a reverse order. I mean, normally people try to provide proof, right? And then they proclaim the truth. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is what I'm proclaiming about who Christ is. And I'm going to show you why it's true. So as we pick up in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. We're going to talk about that next week. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Psalm 89, which we may get to in the future sometime. Verse 6, and again, when he brings... The firstborn of the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Psalm 104. Seeing a pattern here? Verse 7 of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Excuse me. Uh, Verse 6 was Psalm 97. Verse 7 is Psalm 104. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of the kingdom. Psalm 45. Verse 9. It's the only passage in here uh, that is not from the Psalms. It's from Isaiah. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil 
of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Psalm 102. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Psalm 110. That's how we're going to finish our series. Now, most of us would not think that a series on the Psalms would begin in Hebrews. But reading through this passage, how could I not? The writer of Hebrews is laying out 13 chapters of who Christ is. He begins in the Psalms. So in this series, we're going to look at a few different Psalms. And I hope in the future years to come, we continue to read and learn from the Psalms and be encouraged in who Christ is. Next week, we're going to look at Psalms 1 and 2, particularly Psalm 2. We're also going to look at Psalm 22, Psalm 33, Psalm 96, Psalm 110. We could do this over and over and over and over and over. And I hope, again, I'll say this over and over and over again, I hope that you get this desire to look in the Psalms and see them with a new eye. See the truth about God, but see how they glorify Christ and give us a picture of what it means to be in Christ. This is not on the screen. I'm going to run through a list here. This could go on and on and on, but I want to get, want you to get a sense. And if you have a question on any of these passages, I'll be happy to give you the list later. But just get an idea of how the songs talked about Christ and things that we're very, very familiar with, um, but we don't see them originating in Psalms. Psalm 16 talks about how Christ will not see corruption and that he will be resurrected and he'll be the joy of his father sitting at the right hand. These, this was in the sermon in Acts 2 and the sermon in Acts 13. Psalm 34 says that none of my bones will be broken. We know that when Christ is on the cross, his bones weren't broken. Psalm 40, 41.9 tells that he will be betrayed by my close friend. Psalm 68.18 talks about the ascension. And man paying tribute to the one who ascends. Psalm 69 has several references to Christ. In verse 4, he was rejected by his people. Verse 8, he was rejected by his family. In verse 9, he had zeal for his father's house that motivated him to turn over the tables of the money changers in the temple. Verse 21, he was given sour wine to drink. Verse 70, or excuse me, Psalm 72, the sovereign reign of the divine king is, is described in great detail. Psalm 78 verses 1 through 4 talks about prophet that will come who speaks in parables. Sound familiar? And that they will listen to my teaching and those who listen will have life. Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23 the rejected stone will become the cornerstone. It's what Jesus told the Pharisees. You reject me but on this rock I will build my church. Psalm 132, the anointed of David, the chosen, the benevolent benevolent king will reign forever. That's just a fraction of what the Psalms talk about when it comes to the Son of God. So as we kind of wrap this message up, um, 
The Psalms have affected, have affected everyone who has ever loved the Lord and stood behind the pulpit and preached his gospel. So when I was preparing for this, I got so convicted of how I've avoided the Psalms in my teaching life and in my personal devotional life. And I could go quote after quote after quote after quote of how this has affected pastors and churches and people and missionaries throughout the history of the church. I just grabbed a few just to scratch the surface to kind of see how the church has viewed the Psalms over the years. The first is from Athanasius, fourth century church leader, uh, the one who we credit the Athanasian Creed to, who understood and declared the role of the Trinity in each person and did it better than anyone has before or since. This is what he says about the Psalms. It is my view that in the words of this book, the whole of human life, its basic spiritual conduct, as well as its occasional movements and thoughts, is comprehended and contained. Nothing to be found in human life is omitted. The great reformer Martin Luther, leading up to his posting of the 95 Thesis, was teaching on the Psalms. And the Psalms begun to stir his heart to the Lord and begun to challenge his, his theology. And his God that was so great, was a savior and redeemer. How was I still working to earn my salvation? Just as a side note, um, feel bad that you're not reading your Bible enough. I found out that Luther read through his Bible twice a year. Um, in addition to teaching five days a week, preaching four to five times a week and local ministry to other pastors. So uh, we're, we're all falling way, way short. Just a little side note. Um, but Luther first taught and published a, books, a, a book in the Psalms, was his, his first published work. He spent years teaching on it, the University of uh, Wittenberg, and it set the foundation for his grand view of God. Reading that book by Steve Lawson, I loved it, this quote. He said, Romans gave Luther his theology, but it was the Psalms that gave him his thunder. Love that. Romans gave Luther his theology, but it was the Psalms that gave him his thunder. The two books that led to his conviction, which sparked the Reformation, which separated us from the Catholic Church, which we're still reaping the benefits of today. One of the first things he did after the Reformation was to translate the Psalms into German. He called it the Bible in miniature. So this new church that was recognizing the evils of the Roman Catholic system, the first thing Luther wanted them to understand was the Psalms. So that was his first defining act after the thesis. The theses. In the midst of the Black Plague sweeping through Europe, his son was sick and ill on his deathbed, almost dying. Luther, pouring out his heart to God, Studying Psalm 46, penned Almighty Fortress, which we sung earlier. This quote from Luther is what he said about Psalm 46. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because he is with us. He powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implicable hatred of the devil, and against the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. 
John Calvin, another great reformer, comes shortly after Luther. He preached through the Psalms. His church sung the Psalms in all of their services. What's interesting is that Calvin taught and fostered and took care of the young ministers who would become the Puritans, who would become the separatists from the Church of England, who would birth the congregational movement that brought the same system that we're participating in today to the United States, to Americas at the time on the Mayflower. It was the heart of the Psalms. It was Calvin's pastoral passion that raised up young pastors who did not want to be under the yoke of a national church, but under the authority of Scripture, who loved to sing the Psalms and who sung the Psalms continuously in their services. This is what Calvin says about the Psalms. His first quote, which won't be on the screen, but Calvin calls the Psalms the anatomy of all parts of the soul. And he says, although the Psalms are replete with all the precepts which serve to frame our life to every part of holiness, piety, and righteousness, yet they will principally teach us and train us to bear the cross. And the bearing of the cross is a genuine proof of our obedience, since by doing this we renounce the guidance of our own affections, submit ourselves entirely to God, leaving him to govern us, and to dispose of our life according to his will. So how do the Psalms get us to the cross? I hope over the next few weeks you'll see that. Specifically in Psalm 22, we will see that. And I hope you will read and see Psalm 22 for the first time in a new light. But if the Psalms lead us to Christ, and the Christ came to die on the cross, then the Psalms should lead us to the cross. And that's what we will be doing over the next few weeks. And I hope you're here for that. I hope you're here for that. So in conclusion this morning, I want us to read the Psalms to know God more clearly and to know ourselves more clearly. The church in general has lost its love for the Psalms. We rarely sing them. Even more rarely do we preach from them. If we are going to be a people who worships God for who he is and not a God made in our own image, we should do it from how God describes himself and how he prescribes worship for his people. We will dig deep into the treasury of David, as Spurgeon calls the Psalms. Psalms are not an archaic book of theistic poetry that's disconnected from the life of Christ. But they are Christ teaching us about himself, about the lives of his people and his world. And they're what the New Testament writers use to prove the Messiah to the Jews. So I want to commend meditating on the Psalms of these next few weeks, praying through them, spending, them, spending time in devotion in the Psalms to praise and exalt the Son. Next week we're going to see how the, how the Psalms personify the gospel in all of human existence in Psalm 1 and 2. That the way of Christ leads to righteousness and, and blessing, and the rulers of this world are ultimately against the Messiah and will ultimately be defeated. In closing, I want to read this passage one more time, verse, just verses 1 through 4. And I wanted to set us up for our worship to our Lord, whose name is above all names. We're going to sing it next, but I want us to have these truths in mind as we sing what is not just proclaimed in the Gospels, but is what is proclaimed in all of Scripture. That long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Lord, we do not use and proclaim the name that you hold as we should. We have a small gospel. Too often we have a small God, and when we speak of you, we speak in small terms. There's nothing small about you. You are a mighty fortress, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the judge and ruler of all. Your kingdom is now, and your kingdom is yet to become. And we are to be your heralds, those who minister and announce to the world to repent and believe. We are to preach you and proclaim you in every area of our lives just the same way you are proclaimed in every area of Scripture. Lord, as we sing your praises today, let's lift up your name. The angels in heaven would rejoice with us as we look forward to the day when we will all rejoice in one accord with saints throughout time in your kingdom, living in your perfection and in your light for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.